Game face, go. And now, live from College Station, it's Tom Askell and Jared Longshore on the Sword and the Trowel. Welcome to the Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exist for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Tom, we've done a couple of these now. Three. But this one's different. It's much different. What's so different about it? This one has a higher quality to it. <laughs> what <laughs> makes this one have such a greater quality than the others? Because I am in Texas and you're in Florida, two of the freest states in the Union. <laughs> you knew I was going to get it in there. That's lovely. What are we going to talk about today? Oh, well, I think we are uh, on schedule to talk about Article 3 in the Social Justice and the Gospel Statement. I think we're also uh, on schedule to talk about the fourth of the Ten Commandments, and then we better figure out a book to talk about. All right, I've already got the book. Let's talk about justice in this first segment, Article 3 of the Statement of Social Justice and the Gospel. I'm going to read the, uh, the affirmation. Is that okay? Sounds great. We affirm that since he is holy, righteous, and just, God requires those who bear his image to live justly in the world. This includes showing appropriate respect to every person and giving to each one what he or she is due. We affirm that societies must establish laws to correct injustices that have been imposed through cultural prejudice. Yeah, well, that seems to me pretty straightforward. And uh, what this summary of much of what the Bible teaches does is it indicates that uh, everybody talking about justice isn't talking about what the Bible means by justice. And justice starts with God because he himself is just. He is the righteous one. And the reason that justice is a thing is because of the very character and nature of God. So often today, people confound what they mean by justice with uh, what they think the Bible teaches. And uh, all kind of different ideas get imported into that word. And so very often today, people think that if you're not being merciful, that you're not being just. And uh, that's just one example. So if you don't give money to somebody who is poor, then you're being unjust. But in reality, that's mercy. You give to each one what he is due, you're being just. Yeah. That, uh, that other idea is kind of uh, kind of sweet, though. I think you should yeah, live justly, Tom. Give me your money. <laughs> Jared, you're, you're, you're wandering far field, brother, from where you once started. I wish you'd just come back. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Give yeah, yeah. Uh, Leach has two daughters, right? Um, yeah, so, I mean, th this is a basic idea. I think one of the things that uh, has created so much confusion, not only about uh, justice and as well as God's grace and mercy, is that we've just forgotten what real justice is. If we got what was coming to us, if we got what was just based upon reality of sin and God's nature, then none of us have any hope of ever being reconciled with God or enjoying, enjoying any good thing in the world. Because justice for sin is death, eternal death. And so the fact that no one listening to this podcast, you and me doing this podcast, 
that we are not in hell, that is indication that God has dealt with us in mercy. Yeah, amen. I remember coming into your office one day and telling you it dawned on me that all of the talk about demanding justice wasn't actually demanding justice. They were demanding grace. And those are two very different things. If you demand grace, you're cutting the throat of the gospel. You're training folks to think that grace is what they deserve, which is the exact opposite of what grace is, right? It's undeserved favor. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great point. And then people begin to assume upon grace, and then when grace is withheld, they feel like they're being treated unjustly. And again, no one who is not in hell should be complaining about any kind of ultimate injustice. That doesn't mean that, that everyone is treated justly by every other creature. That's not true. Of course, that's what uh, is being contended for today. That's what this article actually says, too, that we should give to each one what he or she is due. That's true for our personal obligations. That's also true for governments and those who are in civil authority. They have a duty to act justly as well because God himself is just. And he, as the Lord, loves justice. He hates robbery. He hates what is wrong. And so as his children, his image bearers, and those especially who reconcile him, we should also hate what is wrong and love justice. It's clarifying this affirmation is um, because it's good to see that the signers of this statement affirm that human beings should live justly in the world. I know that some would want to characterize the disagreement um, along the lines of fundamentalists on the one hand who are no, not concerned at all about living justly in the world uh, over against kind of the activists, the uh, Carl F. H. Henry folks, you know, who want to... Um, Hyperion folks who want to declare every square inch belonging to Christ and seek the welfare of the city. But that division doesn't seem to square with this affirmation. There is a great desire that we live justly in the world. There's agreement on all fronts that we are to live justly in the world. Therefore, the disagreement really lies in what is justice and how should the church and Christians as individuals pursue it in the world. I think that's wonderfully clarifying in the midst of everything going down. Yeah, I agree with you too. I, I would want to make that dichotomy between Kuiper and uh, Henry so sharp, or Kuiper and Henry on one side and what you call collectivist fundamentalists on the other side. Uh, I, I do think obviously there's nuances, but yeah, uh, absolutely. The bottom line is what does the Bible call justice? That word just gets thrown around. It's like a wax nose. It gets put on any kind of face that a person wants to uh, set forth. And we just can't do that with Scripture. That's why we have this very first article, this, this article to debate, this uh, statement uh, of affirmations that the Bible, the Bible alone, is the determiner of what's right and good and proper. That includes justice. That's right. One way to get at this is, I know one writer recently was getting some heat from those who would call themselves Typerians, that this statement is too narrow on its definition of the gospel, it's too narrow in its scope and its understanding. And that writer said, you know, the, 
he essentially said that the people who signed this statement are the real Kuyperians. You need every square inch to belong to Christ. If you're going Absolutely. to if you're going to live justly in the world, you better know what justice is, and you better know what the gospel is. And these things have to be protected and made clear if we're ever going to seek the welfare of the city. So I, I love um, seeing that living justly is something that's uh, a deep concern in this statement. Can I go on yeah. to the denial? Yeah, let's do that. It says we deny that true justice can be culturally defined or that standards of justice that are merely socially constructed can be imposed with the same authority as those that are derived from Scripture. We further deny that Christians can live justly in the world under any principles other than the biblical standard of righteousness, relativism, socially constructed standards of truth or morality, and notions of virtue and vice that are constantly in flux cannot result in authentic justice. Yeah, and again, that to me is, is self-evident if we're taking the Bible as the authoritative, sufficient word of God. Good night. There have been countless examples throughout history of different societal standards of justice. Nazi Germany, uh, Communist China, uh, Stalinist Russia, I mean, you can just go down the list and say what was just according to the dictates of those cultures. We certainly don't want to live uh, under those dictates today, and certainly Christians should always be protesting anything that is contrary to God's word, whether it flies under the banner of justice or not. So we're just trying to, to shut the back door on this issue as well in that denial. Yeah, when people think about socially constructed categories of justice, I wonder if, I wonder if folks are like, hey, you know, what are those? And one way to think about it is that every society is concerned with justification. Every family, every group, um, Every high school cafeteria has the justified class and the not justified class, right? The mean girls create their own little society. And if you do what the mean girls say to do and you wear the clothes that the mean girls say to wear, then you're justified then you're righteous. And if you don't do that, then you're not. And if we can pick up on the fact that every society is doing that, including our own, our cultural elites, uh, movies, things that are going on, um, in America today, we are being signaled. There is a law, and there are um, the judges or rulers that discern whether you have abided by these culturally constructed standards or not. And so we, we want to signal that. That goes on all over the place, and we must um, not defer to those culturally constructed standards of justice, but rather go to the Word so that true justification, Christian justification, uh, is put forth and declared to the world. Yeah, absolutely. And that last sentence covers the waterfront. Relativism, socially constructed standards of truth and morality, and notions of virtue and vice that are constantly in flux cannot result in authentic justice. If you want an example of how Christians and the church today has been heavily discipled by the world in these areas, just look at fashion. Look at standards of modesty and how uh, those things are in the hands of an unbelieving world. And the church has been pummeled by them. Many, many inside the church, many believers go along with them and look oddly at any Christians that want to 
protest or to live differently than the world sets as its standard. Tom, we want to talk about a book in this segment of our podcast, and we today are going to address 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. Uh, this is a book written by Tony Rinke. Uh, I believe Tony's up there with Desiring God, folks. Is that right? I think that's correct. Yeah. Uh, we have had a lot of conversations about technology. There's a number of good books out there, um, both written by Christians and then just uh, other books on technology written uh, in the culture at large. It's a very hot topic, but this 12 ways your phone is changing you uh, identifies a number of influences that smartphones have upon us. And I felt that it was a, a very helpful book as we're trying to think through um, how to use these machines wisely. Yeah, I agree, Jared, and I appreciate the articles that you wrote uh, on this book as you reviewed it. It might be good for us to link to those articles in the show notes if we can, so people can get a little more in-depth understanding of it. But in your reading of the book, what do you think uh, one of the biggest takeaways is for believers today? Yeah, the you know... He, he identifies, obviously, 12 different ways, but the big idea that came to my mind is that smartphones are kind of like um, fireworks, you know, and a whole bunch of folks right now are using their smartphones, kind of like the boys in the neighborhood are about to set off some fireworks on the 4th of July. And we got kind of two roads before us. One, we could have a really good time and these things could explode in the sky if we have wisdom. Uh or we could burn down this neighborhood. <laughs> so uh, you know, we don't want to burn down the neighborhood. We want to be aware that this technology um, has been around for only a short time, and it's probably really working upon us in ways that we don't immediately see. So we should pause, and we should uh, we should think about it. I'll read off just a couple of these that Tony says uh, in his book. For example, he says things like. Our phones amplify our addiction to distractions and thereby splinter our perception of our place in time. You know, I just think about interruption technology is another idea that we've heard about this from other books. And the phone, again, we're always uh, tempted to distractions. Sometimes a distraction is a good one. Sometimes uh, it's not. But I think there's it's undeniable that the phone brings in all sorts of distractions. We're getting dinged and buzzed and notified of all sorts of things. So we need to be aware that it's easier having a smartphone to be distracted from doing what we're really supposed to be doing, from engaging in the work that God would have us engage in, whether that be um, a homemaking mother who's seeking to teach kids and care for her husband and home, she could easily uh, be distracted from that work at hand. If you're a pastor and you know you to be preparing a sermon uh, or spending time in prayer, if you're a businessman or you're working for your employer and you know there's a task that's right at hand and you're getting buzzed all the time, these, the distractions are coming at you right and left with the smartphone. Oh, I, yeah, sorry, I was checking Twitter. Did you say something? <laughs> 
you really were chugging Twitter. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can hear folks yeah. right now saying, oh, you know, but look, this podcast is made available. I, so For a side note, I listened to 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You through Audible on my smartphone. So um, <laughs> I haven't exactly chunked it or anything. So you were, you were changed even by the way you read the book. Then, That's right? right. 13 ways that yeah, my well, phone changes me. <laughs> yeah, well, I think this idea of friction, you know, low friction, high friction communication, and uh, the phone has made low friction communication more accessible to us, which can be, a, uh, you know, it's easy, but we miss something in the dynamic of, of human interaction if we just live our lives that way. Yeah. Um, you know, the one other thought I'll share on this, and then I think we'll just wrap up be all I have to say about this. But I remember quoting to some of the folks in our church, Psalm one, right? Um, do not stand in the seat of sinners, you know, do not um, join in with the scoffers. This idea of um, bad company corrupts good character. Well, Think about the day and age in which we live. We're now carrying around those scoffers in that bad company in our pockets. And especially for parents to children and to parents to youth. Uh, to be thinking about this, that's that becomes very complicated in this day. So, yes, you have access to great wisdom. You have access to R.C. Sproul and Jonathan Edwards and John Owen at the click of a button. And you also have access to some really bad characters that can get you going down bad pathways and developing bad habits very quickly. So just being aware of that, I would uh, recommend the book to people. And I did write those reviews on founders.org if people wanted to check out more. All right, TK, well, I think you start we're, the fourth uh, one, TK. All right, we're looking at the fourth commandment. I'll read it. I'll read it, you interpret it. How's that? Sounds good. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is Exodus 20, verse 8, 9 through 11. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, Jared, uh, how do you observe the Sabbath? I remember it and keep it holy. So that means that you don't start your car on Saturday. Otherwise, you would be guilty because of the combustible engine of uh, starting a fire. You should be stoned. That's right. And I stone people that, that do it. <laughs> well, that's what I thought. I know how you Sabbatarians are. That's right. Yeah. You know, so a lot of my conversations with folks about this uh, Sabbatarian idea is they immediately go to like the nuanced questions like, hey, can you watch football? Like, hey, can you, uh, do you guys go out to restaurants and stuff? And I think the particulars we should be uh, general in. We should, understand folks are going to uh, work out this fourth commandment in different ways. But let's talk about the, the heart of it. God has established one day in seven in which he is uh, to be 
worshipped in a particular way in which we are to keep holy is to be set apart and different from the other days. And so uh, gathering with the church to worship the Lord as I'm doing so, I'm remembering this is the first day of the week. This is one day in seven set apart to be holy and uh, make efforts to rest from the regular work that I've done for the other six days and try to do that with my wife and try to do that with my children as well. Thinking about uh, this day is a delight. We call the Sabbath a delight. We rejoice that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and we eagerly long for this gift from God to uh, rest and be rejuvenated by his word for the work ahead in the coming six days. We're being strengthened so that we can go out into the world and uh, represent God and serve Christ and see his ways advanced in the world. Yeah, I have gotten to the point uh, long ago, actually, that I don't have conversations about the fourth commandment without a prior conversation or some level ground of agreement about the Ten Commandments, because you can't abstract the Fourth Commandment from the other nine, and I've never been able to have a fruitful conversation on that basis. So the first question is, are there Ten Commandments that still obtain for Christians today in the New Covenant? And I would contend, yes, there are. That's a big theological issue. We have friends who disagree with that. And I understand that, and I don't want to uh, to lose friends over that issue, though I, I do have uh, pretty clear convictions about it. But if we can't agree that the Ten Commandments still obtain today for Christians in the New Covenant, we're not going to have a fruitful discussion about the Fourth Commandment. People say, well, the Fourth Commandment, all the other nine are repeated in the New Testament. The fourth Commandment is not repeated. Well, I don't believe that's true. Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not Jews. And he said, not man for the Sabbath. So we are no longer under a Jewish Sabbath. We, we don't practice it and keep it like New Covenant believers do, recognizing everything that you just summarized so well about how to take a light in it and recognize God's the God of time. He's given us one day at seven. We always complain about no, not enough time to read the Bible, not enough time to pray, not enough time to memorize scripture. What would happen if we took one day at seven and actually set it aside the way that we can uh, through the provisions of God and gave ourselves to those things. Our, our lives would be so much better than the typical God. Yeah, it does seem to be a commandment that folks can go wrong on two sides of the road, right? One is, boy, we discover the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. It's still binding. Let's get intense about it. And as you said, we just think about all the things we can't do, and it's kind of got this dark tone to it and got a legalistic flavor to it. And you don't want to start your car and you want to stone some folks and that's a problem then you got this other side that says you know we just kind of meet on sunday just because that's what's culturally acceptable here and um you know this 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 heavy lord's day good lord's day doctrine i have has no connection really or no main grounding in the fourth commandment of the old testament we just kind of we don't appreciate that it is uh, one of the ten commandments that's still binding and is still what Christians ought to do. So I remember coming to this with you and, you know, it's not like I was born thinking that the fourth commandment is still binding for Christians. I didn't come about it that way, but I remember uh, a couple particulars that helped me along the way. Uh, one was the text in Colossians that says, let no man, um, let no man 
require these things of you, a new moon festival or a Sabbath day. And I still remember looking at you saying, man, I know that these Ten Commandments should all come together, but this text right here says, let no one lord it over you. A new moon festival or a Sabbath day. It's right there, Tom. You know, it seems like we got New Testament clarification on the Old Testament. You remember what you told me? Sabbaton. You said Sabbaton. You said, you said it's plural, it's Sabbaths. I said, no, it's not. Look at my ESV, man. It says Sabbath. You said, you better go check that Greek out, son. And uh, I went and looked at the Greek. So, oh boy, it does say Sabbaths. Okay, what's the implications and why does that matter? And you said there is a refrain in the Old Testament, new moon festival or Sabbaths. And then I think Lloyd-Jones is the one who cited this. And uh, John English Lee, one of the board members of founders, has done his work on this. But he drew this out, this refrain in the Old Testament of new moon festivals and Sabbaths being not the Sabbath in the Old Testament, but days of rest that were established by Old Testament Jewish leaders uh, in preparation for these festivals, for these new moon festivals. And so what Paul has in his mind is not the Sabbath in Colossians, but he has in his mind the days of rest that the Jewish leaders would establish in relationship to these festivals. And I remember that was the last peg, man. I said, dude, that was the only thing I was standing on. I think I'm, uh, I think I'm an upholder of the fourth commandment now. Yes, and we all rejoice greatly. And stone some people is what we did. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And it's an important point because, uh, you know, I think some of our friends who uh, try to avoid legalism and say, well, the fourth commandment doesn't obtain today, uh, but that they, they want to impose Lord's Day observances upon Christians. Like, you know, it's, it's difficult because you start saying ought and should without divine authority, then that's where you're really in danger of legalism. Yeah, that happens. You know they're going to go all all New, New Testament on you there, you know, and say they have biblical authority, and we would agree with that. But to your, but to your point, the it's relieving to see the um, that when we're dropping shoulds on folks, we should have biblical law, biblical commands undergirding that. Maybe one final thought on the uh, Sabbath, Tom. How how does the fourth commandment relate to our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, well, it is a it's a foreshadowing of what's coming. You know, the all the good things that we enjoy when we observe the Sabbath as New Covenant believers, that's a foretaste of what's coming. I mean, Christ is our eternal Sabbath, and we do rest in Him eternally. And so, as we think and try to apply this to our lives today, we're just we're just entering into a, an anticipation of what's to come. And that day is coming. Christ will appear and we will enter into our eternal, our final rest. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from The Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org.